So imagine if the first Tesla, we have the potential of providing proper housing for thousands and thousands of people. People are becoming more aware that we need to have a different purpose than just making money. Welcome to Seedstar's podcast. Seedstars is an organization that aims to have an impact in emerging markets by supporting the local entrepreneurs, investing in their ventures, but also sharing their story globally because we really believe they are the true heroes. We'll be listening to them and other thought leaders and disruptors that are really shaping the future of tomorrow. And we hope that together we can build a sustainable impact. Before we start, I would like to thank our partner, the Human Security Division, from the Federal Department of Foreign Affairs of Switzerland, who made today's episode possible. I'm uh, Jens Otgard Olson. I'm the CEO, Managing Director of Life Shelter, which is a company that provides affordable housing at a high quality for people who are in most need. So that would be refugees, uh, IDPs around the world. My name is Romulo Navarrete. I'm part of the Seedstars team as the head of operations at Seedspace, our physical hub for entrepreneurs in emerging markets, and also leading the operations of our, one of our programs, the investment readiness programs to help startup get investment ready. Hello, welcome everybody to the Seedstars podcast. I have here with me Jens Odgar, also managing director of Life Shelter. Hello, Jens. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Romulo. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about Life Shelter in one sentence. Life Shelter is a low cost, a very uh, nice uh, living space for families, um, mainly targeted to uh, the poorest and the most vulnerable people in the world, refugees, uh, internally displaced people. So just for our audience to have some more context, what are the geographical scope that you that you have with Life Shelter? So we have been working for five, six years in the field with our structures, and we had, have had a primary focus on East Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, Somalia. And we've also been working in the Middle East, in uh, Iraq, Kurdish region of Iraq, and uh, in part in Jordan. In total, we've been working in 12 countries. Have you been to, to those countries to see face-to-face what's, what's happening with the refugee camps and life shelter? I visited uh, quite a few and also families who have been living in our shelters for around five years. Um, and it's uh, not all camps you can get access to. And also some of our structures have been there so long. And uh, so we, we, we have not, uh, I have not personally seen all of them, but uh, it's really, really nice to get the feedback from, from the field. I can imagine. So you mentioned that um, these this temporary homes that you provide to the people can last up to 15 to 20 years. Um, how is it to, to see suddenly a family that has been using your solution for, let's say, five years by now? What's their feedback when you go on the field? What's the, what's the, the sensations and, and, and the words that they provide to you? Well, so uh, first of all, um, we are amazed. So the people who have been living in our structures for five years, they actually have been living in our very first pilots. So imagine if the first Tesla, how it looks today if someone is driving it. I don't think so. So for us, it's just amazing that even the first pilots we did five years ago, they're still in function. Uh, and we can see them being used and we can see when we're meeting the families, just knocking on the door and uh, saying, hello, can we come in? 
and just seeing that it looks nice. It looks like people are thriving. And that's uh, really, really motivational for us to, to see that. And we can see small societies being built and that uh, the people, they enjoy living in our, in our shelters. Uh, and they, they cherish all the, all the benefits that uh, you know, we can detail at our desk and say, we believe that it's uh, good when it rains, that it's, um, it's cool when it's sunny and it's warm when it's cold, all these benefits. This is something that comes back to us really, really strong as well as you know the privacy that you get from living in in kind of like a decent shelter and not something uh, a shabby tent or something like that absolutely it must be very um heart welcoming to go to these houses and see the people directly from the families and motivating i would like to know um jens what motivated you to manage this project especially in the refugee um let's say sector i think it's about making an impact um i've had different uh, director roles and managing director positions and uh, just being able to do uh, something for the greater good uh, is very motivational and i think everybody who's working in this uh, world uh, of, of ngos or supplying to the ngos i mean there's there's a certain motivation we have the potential of providing proper housing for thousands and thousands of people who are worse off in many other uh, shelter solutions. So, mm -hmm. if we, and we know that, you know, the, the bigger we become, the more people we can help. So that's, that's very, very motivational for us. So I will come back to exactly that, like how do you become bigger and also sustainable just in a minute. But you mentioned to the ability to make an impact, uh, I guess, in people's lives and, and in something that is definitely a challenge in, in our world, just taking a look at the statistics of how many displaced people we have, um, not just in Africa and the Middle East, but around the world. Um, why specifically the refugee sector per se in your case? The, the, whole, the whole motivation for life shelter comes from our founder, Jacob Christensen. Who did, um, who did the first drawings of the life shelter when he was doing his master thesis. He's a, a construction engineer. And all of his friends were making uh, sky risers and bridges and so on. And he wanted to do something completely opposite. He wanted to build for the, the people who were most in need and not for the people who were looking for the next tallest sky riser. Um, so, so, so that was his motivation of doing this. And then by looking at the, the people who are most in need, how can you do something which is extremely simple, which is low cost and which vastly improves their lives? I think this, this is where everything started to develop. And very, very early, Jacob was in dialogue with some of the world's leading, in, leading NGOs. And they could see that there was something about the structure, something about the shape, something about all these benefits that could come along. Uh, so very rapidly, he got his first pilots together with the Danish Refugee Council. And uh, these are the structures that we have just recently been revisiting after five years of deployment. And, you know, they're still they're still in operation. People are still living in them. Mm -hmm. And you have you have a background in agriculture, also economy, and you have had a best experience managing uh, different ventures um, and having the opportunity to manage different companies around the world or different projects. What was 
what was your particular motivation? What actually made you fall in love with this, um, with this particular project that you say, okay, I'm definitely gonna jump in, I see an opportunity. Um, why particularly Life Shelter? I think it's about the potential of the, of the company. Right now, we are, our projects are small scale. So we are really looking on how, how can we scale the company? So for me, it's the, it's the exercise about creating the company and creating the scaling around the product that really, really motivates me. It's about creating the contacts and the dialogues and the partnerships that can, that can bring us to the next levels. Uh, for me, that's very, very motivational. It's also very motivational to work with some of the kind of like some of the poorest people in the world. Of course, it is motivation because we can make a huge difference. You can also make a huge difference just by bringing pencils and, and papers to the refugee camps. But this is something that is sustainable. It's something that is the cornerstone, cornerstone for everybody's life, having a nice home. Definitely, definitely. I think it's the basis and the foundation mm. um, and something that definitely refugees don't have and we shouldn't take for granted at all. Um, let me let me then go back to the point of uh, growth. You mentioned this a couple of times. How um, now you can make this small scale business do have a larger scope? How do you manage? And, and I guess this is a question that a lot of um, different impact social entrepreneurs have. How can you manage a sustainable growth with the with the impact? Because the bigger you are, the bigger you can impact. But also, I guess the question arises quickly how can I make it sustainable in terms of environmentally friendliness, in terms of financial sustainability? How do, how do you foresee that you could grow Life Shelter while keep being sustainable? Uh, when we're looking at the product, it's got the same, uh, first of all, it's got a very low CO2 footprint. And we can see that the sustainability is connected to our product at a very low level because it's got a very long lifetime long lifespan so that means what you invest is what you will look at in all the years to come uh, so comparing that to other solutions where you need to renew or renovate or do all kinds of things you have something which is extremely stable and that's the same no matter if you are building one or one thousand or a hundred thousand of these units it's it's a very low footprint uh, the sustainability element is vastly different if you're looking, for instance, on the uh, on a tented situation. A tent lasts less than two years, so every two years you need to replace the tents, and that has an economic side, uh, uh, environmental side effect, because um, a tent might not be a very uh, heavy in CO, terms of CO2, but the renewing of them just adds to the level of the CO2, and then what's happening to the thousands of tents all over refugee camps is that they end up in the environment, either as microplast because they are kind of like, they're becoming fragile and, 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 and scattered, or they are collected and then they're burned in huge pits. So tents are, up, up, I mean, they're just ending up in the, in the local environments. Mm -hmm. um, and also scaling up, if you're looking at mud brick houses with a roofing structure made of, of trees and branches and so on. I mean, if you're scaling that, you need more trees. 
a country like Uganda, where we're working, uh, their level, the, the forest level is plummeting from 30% in the mid 90s, and it's just going down to zero. So there's no, you, you can't scale something where you need to have, where you are depending on wood. Mm -hmm. Did you uh, always know that, or this is something that you found along the way? It's something that, uh, it, this is something that we have been detailing over the last 12 months. And, uh, and it's not something that's, there's not a lot of, you can't say that there's a lot of knowledge on it. So we are, we're trying to create this knowledge around sustainability and just trying to create a debate because, uh, and, and have a discussion on it. Because in, in, if you have abundance of wood, that, I mean, of course you can use it. If you have abundance of um, clay to make mud bricks and perfect weather conditions, then of course, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very good way of building structures. You're using local materials. But if you don't have this abundance and you need something that's stable for many years, and you can see that these camps are gonna stay there for many years, then you need to kind of like um, prepare for the long haul. And you don't do that with short-term solutions. How do you see the, the, the evolution in terms of the product per se along, among the future years to come? Do you see, is there anything that you would like to implement? Is there something in the roadmap that now you're trying to consider to implement to have a better solution? Uh, the solution that was invented five years ago, um, people are still living in it. Okay, <laughs> so, impressive. So, so first of all, uh, the solution that we have is pretty good. Uh, can we do things with it? Yes, we can tweak. We can uh, we we can change the dimensions. We can make it longer, shorter. We can include um, uh, toilet facilities. We can create an area for making a kitchen. We can make room divisions. But we are not we are not looking at radical innovation here. We are looking mm -hmm. at incremental applications, uh, depending on the local context. Sorry, just, just to, I, I'm just curious to know, and I'm sure the audience also would like to know, how fast can your solution be implemented if suddenly we have a refugee crisis in, in some part around the world? How fast can you go and assist and build the, the shelters for the refugees? So uh, if something happened, and this is an area that uh, we are working in, let's say it could be an earthquake in the Middle East, um, Iran, uh, we have kits available right now that we would be sending by plane. Uh, then, so if the earthquake happened now, then in two weeks, we could be on the ground, started training on how to build our structures. Uh, and the trainers that we would train, they would be supplemented with materials. So within five, six weeks, uh, all the materials for, this, for the big push would be arriving. Uh, and then... It's, 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 a, it's a gradual process. But making these houses or these shelters is extremely simple. It takes two persons, two days to build a shelter. Wow. And I've learned to build one. Uh, so Rumulu, if, uh, if we were together, uh, we could build one in two days, you and I. And then uh, after that, you could build one with one of your friends. And then when you had built that one together, both of you would be experts. And in that way, it's kind of like, it's the power of two. Two becomes four, becomes eight, 16, 32, 64. So 
and and it's the, the it's just about having the supply of the materials and we have many of the materials we find them locally uh so it's also for us it's also about sourcing and also the training we're training local teams to do this uh the only material that we need to uh, to have uh, imported depending on the region but if it's in if it's in the middle east if it's in in iran we would get the materials from turkey so we could get them uh, regionally I, I remember i used to be volunteering one of these projects of also building shelters in vulnerable areas in peru where originally i am from and one of the big components of actually um, building the shelters was to involve the family so they could have a sense of belonging to the project and not just like oh you're providing me the shelter and that's it and that's kind of an exterior factor but psychologically it plays a huge role to actually be involved in building it together with the family for this sense of belonging and let's say property um what's your experience with life shelter and and this aspect of families being involved building their own shelters uh, we can't say anything specifically how it how it uh, how how they feel we we don't know that I, i mean the ngos that we're working with they would have that knowledge but definitely this is something that we are we're transferring this knowledge to the to the end users so uh, we are having uh, congolese refugees uh, burundi refugees doing all of some of the some of the works we are we are hiring them in so when you're going to these rural areas you always have a cash for work component so we are including them in our in our work pool so it depends very much on also on the client some clients they would like to have it a, a kind of like a turnkey solution and then we have our own for instance in uganda we have our own ugandan team and they're building it directly for 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 some of our clients there Mm-hmm. but we can do both and people they um, it's also about uh, on the other side of having it built you also have a little bit of maintenance so if a branch falls down and cracks something i mean you need to have some skill right there inside about mix some sand and cement plaster it on and then paint it, everybody can do that but you need to transfer that responsibility to the to the as as close to the end user as possible Mm-hmm. and i guess here the ngos play a big role in being like the the face to the to the local community and transferring this knowledge and i'm sure like around the world there is many different um people that have or are innovating solutions like very very developed in terms of scientific research in terms of materials for shelters in terms of what is the best sustainable product that they can offer but suddenly they are faced to how can we distribute this solution who should i enter in touch with um how was the the role of contacting different partners with life shelter and what would you recommend to somebody around the world that has a solution but doesn't know how to suddenly go to market or have this distribution channel what are the best practices for you oh i, I would love to be able to answer that question <laughs> because it's uh uh it's it's not straightforward it's not like I, i usually like to compare life shelter up against a t-shirt company you know you and i we could make some uh, memes and some prints we could agree on that right here you know just make a t-shirt print we could post it on facebook and then you know we would have a cash flow within a couple of days we would have a cash flow uh, i'm i'm pretty certain about that 
but it doesn't work like that here. This is a very, it's a very, very conservative sector. Uh, and they have also, you must um, acknowledge that they have the responsibility for some of the most vulnerable people in the world. So of course, you can't just wander in with a with a solution and and say oh yeah we are the best for for providing shelter let's now you're going to buy from us so there's a there's a lot of uh, filters and there's a lot of um, um, milestones uh, it's difficult to map in uh, upfront what are these milestones but it's about creating strong partnerships so we've had very close um, cooperations with some of the leading NGOs. Uh, Danish Refugee Council, Norwegian Refugee Council, Save the Children, Oxfam, and uh, they can help us navigate. And usually what happens is that if, if one door closes, then you'll have another door opening. And then you can try run through that door. Maybe that's going to close, but then there's a third door that's opening. And it feels a little bit like... Um, it, it feels that sometimes it can be a little bit stressful trying to juggle all these NGOs, also because they work, they, they are, their standard operation procedures are very different. They're not two NGOs that, that work in the, in, the, in the same way. So, so that's not, you know, go-to-market is something that we are really, really discussing a lot in our company. How, because it's, it's very connected to scale. Um, Right now, we can sell, uh, and that, that's the purchase order, the, the size of the purchase order right now. It's about maybe 30 shelters or 10 schools. That, that fits into one container, a 40-foot container. Uh, but our, our vision is about not delivering 30 shelters, but 3,000 or 30,000 shelters. In Somalia right now, you have a huge uh, IDP crisis, displaced internal displaced persons in, in Somalia, counted by hundreds and thousands, and they need, they need a place to live. I mean, this is, this is in that dialogue, we want to be positioned. And from being you know, the supplier of 30 shelters and then being in the dialogue of 400,000 uh, units, it's it's a huge huge step for us, and we are identifying you know what what are the stepping stones in order to to get to that level. Like in this balance of trying to grow and 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 to be sustainable and to try to help as as many people as you can while staying relevant with the right partners and so on. I guess team of life shelter is a big role, um, and I guess a lot of people as well want to be part of the solution and would like to work for a company like Life Shelter. In terms of recruitment for your team, what is it that you see in, in the person that you say, okay, I, I want this person in my team besides the, the skills per se that you might be recruiting for the position? Like what is in within the passion? Um, what are the, the main concepts that you're looking for when recruiting uh, for Life Shelter? Um, first of all, I think uh, the passion comes along because you can't, and in general, uh, I live in Denmark and in general, there's a big trend in, in the working uh, theater that people, they're looking for purpose. I mean, everything is about having a purpose. 
maybe right now we're sitting in each our basements <laughs> in two separate worlds. Uh, and uh, maybe the corona is going to change a little bit about that, uh, about working for a purpose. And I think a purpose is going to be so important in the future. It's This is not about getting a bigger car or getting... Uh, getting a new bicycle or getting, you know, all these climate discussions that we have right now about red meat or fossil fuels. And so I think a, a lot of things are, are going to change over the, the course of the next coming years um, because we cannot, I mean, and, and people are becoming more aware that we need to have a different purpose than just making money. You know, it's about creating an impact and creating a world that's better for our children than, than it is right now. We have a huge obligation. So I think that if people, they see our job ads, you know, then they are automatically that kind of person who would work for the poorest people in the world, you know? So there's something about that. And then for me, it's about creating a team that uh, we are a small team. So we are a handful of people in Denmark and we are a handful of people in, in Uganda. We have some uh, outstanding uh, partnerships in Iraq and uh, also in Tanzania. Um, but we are a very, very narrow company. So that means that when, when we are onboarding people, they need to have an extremely flexible mind. It's not, you, you can't just be the, you're not just kind of like the, the back-end officer, our head of delivery, um, Uwe. Uh, he is uh, head of finance, his head of logistics, his head of everything, and I'm head of sales, and I'm head of the company. Everybody's got so many different roles, but but we need to rest assured that over when his, you know, head of logistics is the head of logistics, so I don't spend my time trying to fix his things and the other way around. So we need to have very distinct roles, but still we need to work extremely closely together. Um, so we have constant uh, updates. We have a lot of uh, interactions every day. Even now with the corona, we have uh, not daily. We have every second day, we have a long video meeting where we keep each other updated and so on. So, so the recruitment for me is a, for us is about having people who wants to be part of this journey, um, and, but who also has this commercial mindset about you know how how can we make things how can we improve things and then we're looking for for the best skilled persons of course mm -hmm. you mentioned it a little, couple of times and i think it's very relevant now um to talk about it about corona the covid19 crisis mm. how is covid19 crisis influencing your your operations or your or your plans right now uh and this is the 25th of march uh there's a curfew in the Middle East in all the countries that we're working. Jordan, Iraq curfewed. Uh, the, the people that we are in dialogue with in, in East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, they are, you know, they're closing their borders. So things are becoming more difficult. Uh, the, the good thing for us is that we're not depending on on having things flown in or transported in. We have, you know, we have our team right now, we have a team in Uganda working um, for CARE International on a project in Chinguali. So they can, they, they can work uh, and, and we are doing remote management. So we are helping them from, from Denmark. We don't need to be on the sites 
we can do things. We've, we've done that over the last year, been able to, to distance uh, monitor our and make remote management. So we, there's not a, a dependency in our projects that you need to have some uh, technical expert flown in from Denmark and, uh, and be part mm. of, of, of the operations. So in that way, we can still operate, but um, of course, we, we don't engage right now in things that are too far out in the distance. It's, it's very, very complicated right now for us. And also the discussions, I mean, the, the, the people that I'm talking with, you know, they're not looking for, right now, they're not looking necessarily for the next shelter option. They're looking for how can we have healthcare in a refugee camp with 100,000 people and we have Corona. I mean, this is, you know, this, this is where they're stepping up and we can feel that, that the NGOs, you know, they're, they're tuned in on, on the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Do you also get into into that field, or you, like in terms of the healthcare provide um, in the healthcare supply, not per se, but in terms of infrastructure? I mean, we would be we would be very very willing to participate in that. Um, it's but then it comes back to you know the first question is what is what are your references within healthcare, and we don't have any within healthcare. We have it within uh service uh, legal advisory centers where they're using our structures as small offices and so on so we mm. are adjacent to it but you know we we haven't run health clinics in our structures so because that's 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 a different customer it's 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 not even though it might be the un or it might be you know, it might be a, a one NGO, Danish Refugee Council, or someone who is building shelters. That doesn't mean that they're also building the health centers in the same camp. So instead of running a lot of different conversations to a lot of different agencies, we have focused on on shelters and staff housing and offices, schools, um, and so on. Great. And Jens, I would like to ask you the, now a personal question. Um, what what have been the challenges that you have encountered um, in, in this journey as a person? As a person, uh, there are many ups and downs. And I think it's the same for any startup that you have some really great days and then you have some uh, pretty bad days. Uh, so it's a, it's a roller coaster. You can have things that are really, really promising and then you get one email and, and you're back to zero. Um, then you have, you know, two hours later, you have a great conversation with someone where you really feel that now, you know, something is maturing here. This sounds promising. Uh, so of course there's a lot of, uh, you need to have quite a lot of uh, stamina, I think. And just being, uh, one thing is that we have, um, our issues, um, in, in, in markets that are not uh, easy to get to. So if we have a problem in Uganda, I mean, we can't address it tomorrow. We need to plan if we have an, if a, we have an issue in the camp. Of course, we have our local partners, but it's not like, you know, if you're running a factory, you can just walk downstairs on the factory floor and then see why the machine is not operating. Here, we have quite a bit of distance. Um, so, so that's of course difficult. Uh, we have customers who are spread all over the world. I'm talking every week with, uh, 
New York, Nairobi, Geneva. So everything is everywhere, you know. So that's that it's that's quite stressful to to have all these dots connected, and yeah. So 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 that's. Um, that's a challenge, yeah. Sounds but like it. Uh, yeah, but it's so you know if you were making something, maybe. But I'm also motivated by something that's not straightforward, and I think it's the same for everybody around Life Shelter, even our investors and the board of directors who's who's around us is motivated by this because we can all see that it's it's a lot of hard work, but we have you know we are always looking at the ultimate goal. I mean, we can create better homes for thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're better off in our shelters than in anything else. Yeah. And okay. I guess when one goes to sleep, if I would be working at a life shelter and I could go to sleep every night just thinking on that, that's enough motivation for the following day. But I agree. I think a lot of these social entrepreneurs are quite moved by the fact of chaos and trying to see how you can provide a solution in the middle of this chaos. And that's kind of the engine that keeps you going and going and thriving. Um, what has been your main learning in, in this journey? I would say that it's very, very complicated to be an innovative company uh, working towards a very conservative sector. Um, and I think that that's one of the main learnings. Um, um, and and this, is, this is our strategy. This is what we want to do. Uh, but it's difficult and it's it, it's really time consuming to convince and convince and reconvince. You know, we have a great product. We have five years of track record. Um, and, and still we are seeing some kind of like main stakeholders still being indecisive. Uh, mm. And, and and that's a little bit uh, discouraging, I would say, because it's you know, it's also about them being able to step up. The our peers, the NGOs, and I have great respect for them, but um, but they, I think that some of the challenges that the world is seeing, is not necessarily on their desk. For instance, the sustainability goals is not necessarily relevant in some of the UN implementing organizations. Um, so I, I don't think necessarily that all these things are, are interconnected and it's all not always, and you know, that could be any market, um, but it's not necessarily the best uh, product that that uh, that wins today. Um, uh, and, and those things, those learnings is, you know, could we have learned faster? That's that's my ambition always to learn fast and implement. Uh, but still, we can see that the 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 market that we are uh, addressing is conservative. It's it's moving slow, and they have a lot of time. And you know, that's one thing that they they always have is the ability to kind of like push for the next budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to do this now. We maybe in a year's time or sounds good but let's do it in half a year and then when you're looking at it from uh, from a startup perspective i mean that's very dangerous because we are moving very very fast and then if we have a slow moving market then uh, i mean that's you can you can just do the math and then um, that that i mean that's the real potential for potential showstopper is that we are running out of time mm-hmm. 
So, so you mentioned about the challenges of being a little bit dependent on this conservative industry being NGOs, foundations, if I understood correctly, um, and sometimes not necessarily them having this startup culture of going fast, being lean. Uh, it sounds like a paradox at the same time because the, these organizations or these type of profiles of organizations want to do some, some changes and want to definitely impact. On the other hand, you have a magnificent product that you can sometimes feel kind of stuck into delivering your solution as much as you want it to be delivered and having the impact that you envision to have. I guess it's a difficult question, but I will ask it anyway. How can you give a solution to this? Like, um, is it you changing your business model and not being so dependent on foundations and NGOs, or is it something about mindset within the people working in NGOs and, and foundations? Do you think this is something that's going to change because of generational changes, like millennials stepping up and working for these foundations? H how do you see um, this being solved? I think that um, we cannot change the mindset of the UN, for instance, it's, it's not possible. We are a small organization, uh, NGOs have their ways of working. Uh, so we need to move around that because we can see that there's a need. We can see that we have a great solution. So how can we then go to market with this solution? So it, it, that it's our responsibility to adapt to the reality. Uh, so, even you know everybody would you know if you have a great product and you are not getting the you know the the market penetration you would like the market to change but I mean you can't you need to be Coca Cola or Apple to educate your market um, so and, and you know if you are a small player you need to adapt to the rules um, of engagement so so definitely the the challenge is, is on our side. Okay, on how to navigate with this type of profiles. Do, do you see it changing in, in some future with these generational uh, changes that I just mentioned? Uh, hopefully. Uh, well, what we can see is that you have, um, it's, it's very person specific and it's very uh, NGO specific. So we have uh, NGOs and we have persons in the NGOs that are very, very motivated by doing things different and doing them better and we also have a push from the donors who wants to have a better uh, environmental footprint and who want to have an increased economic performance so and this is what we're delivering so that's you know that's what's not to like basically mm -hmm. did you ever um got frustrated at to a point that you were like okay this is it ah <laughs> uh, no 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 never no. never never okay <laughs> No, that's yeah, impressive. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, of course, but you know, it's uh, you need to. Uh, the British they have a saying: "Get the chip off your shoulder." You know, get on with it, and uh, and you need to have uh, resilience. Uh, you need to have, and also it's kind of like keep up the good working relations because you know, even though that you know this organization or that person. Uh, told you no. It doesn't mean that they have a a personal thing against you or your product. It might just be the system. It might be systematic. So even even those who are not my clients or our clients, I find great value in in talking with them because they can help me develop my product. So 
I can address some of their colleagues or another of their partners or kind of like identify, you know, how can, how can we do this? How can we scale this? And that, you know, that, that's my ambition uh, to scale uh, Life Shelter. What would you say, and I'm gonna go very, um, let's say sci-fi in here, like not necessarily reality. Um, I am from Peru and, and, and I've encountered this challenge in, in my country with a lot of the Venezuelan big crisis of migration that, that, that we had in Latin America. And I think we were challenged as a country in terms of readiness to, to assist to this. And I see and still now a lot of initiatives of these entrepreneurs locally wanting to do some, some wanting to come up with solutions to this. Um, but they're very early stage. Um, so we could say that it's the, if, if refugees um, and migrants are a minority, I guess this in emerging markets is even more, like even more of a minority. And especially in countries that are not necessarily been exposed to, let's say, companies like you, like Life Shelter and, and, and others. Um, what would you say to this entrepreneur that is just starting, that has a product or thinks has a product ready to assist with this? Um, what would you say to him or her in order to motivate him or her in their, in their journey? Okay, I think first of all, start working very closely with uh, one or two NGOs. Go with them, piggyback on their operations. Be flexible. One day might be Venezuela, the next day it could be um, Nigeria. So it, you know, be be flexible in your mind and and play along. Be very adaptive. Just make sure that you are, you know. A little bit on the forefront, that that you that you are ready to answer the questions that you can see that they might be asking. So you you are the innovator, but they you know they the NGOs they see the problems they see what is needed, and if you have a very close connection with them, you will get that knowledge back into your product development. Uh, and and we've seen that happening. You you have prop you have. Uh, products that are being developed very, very swiftly based on these corporations. Uh, um, and the, the cooperative mindset is very, very strong within the NGO community. They're always in partnerships uh, and they can, really, they, can, they can really bring you a long way. Uh, and if you have the right product, then, uh, it, it, then it's not going to be Kind of like this very very long uh, period that we are seeing, um, it it could go faster. You see that within uh, mobile technology, Wi-Fi solutions, uh, uh, cooking stoves, stuff like that, smaller items, or maybe not. Well, Wi-Fi is not a small item, but it's a it, it's a new basic infrastructure that needs to be built. So that opens up a new market. Uh, solar panels and so on that's you know that's a huge uh, sustainable energy uh, all those things are, are growing and growing in kind of like the uh, willing to adapt also from the ngos because this is you know also money are shifting towards those kinds of solutions so that opens up a, a playing field for for, exa for example tech uh, companies mm -hmm. working with refugees what's the um... 
what comes first? Like, is, I think sometimes maybe, a, or I can, I can get the sense that this is a chicken and egg problem, right? I want to build a solution, but I don't have the funds to build it. But in order to get funds, I need to provide my solution first. Um, what comes first for you in your experience? Uh, definitely, uh, chicken and egg. That that's been that's been the that's been the juggle. Uh, and then you need to have enough capital to make the boost. To you need to invent an egg for your chicken. Uh, I like uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, for instance, in Uganda, uh, uh, when I started, I, within three weeks after I started, I in the company, I inaugurated a limited company in Uganda. And we also took the decision that in order to have a market in Uganda, we needed to have products there. We needed to have a, a showroom. We needed to be able to uh, invite people to see our structures and so on. So we made a partnership with um, ATRA, which is the humanitarian branch of the Adventist Church. Uh, and we have now a wonderful workshop and showroom in the middle of Kampala where we can invite people to come and see and experience our structures. We did the same in Tanzania. We've done the same also in, in Iraq. And so we are investing in making the next push. Uh, and then we are trying to document that what we predicted was also what happened. Um, so we are trying to, people then they're asking us, okay, are you sure that it takes two persons two days to build a shelter? Yes, we're sure, because we have tried it. We are documenting right now in Chinguali, Uganda, we are documenting exactly how many hours are spent on making a slab, on making raised foundations, on making this and that and that. It's all broken down in a timesheet, so we know exactly how long time it will take to build 1,000 schools, uh, because it's very important for us to have that knowledge. But the next step for us is about delivering, you know, the maybe identifying the financial package that can be attractive for deploying maybe 5,000 units. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe these money that needs to be invested could be $10 million would be, uh, would, would come as a, uh, risk willing capital but as a kind of like as a guarantee uh because basically what we can provide is the shelter as a service people are paying rent and then actually you will have a return on your investment which could be invented uh, transferred into a new pool of structures that would be built so we're trying to kind of like create a carrier or create an egg for the chicken uh, so we can hack the next big challenge, which is the, the growth uh, that we are looking at. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it, it, it requires that we are the, the ones that comes with the solutions. They're not, you know, it, it doesn't come from the, from the client side. The client side has a different perspective. Um, but yeah, so that, that, that's the juggle. You mentioned something that for me it's very important in the startup journey, which is being very data driven. So documenting everything, not just for your internal processes and to be more efficient about it, but I guess also to provide some credibility to that if you're trying to fundraise, if you're looking for donors that you have infrastructure. 
do you feel that sometimes this is like a, a gap in, in social entrepreneurship because they have the passion, they are driven with, with, with the motive of actually building something that has an impact, but suddenly they lack this kind of business acumen uh, or they're thinking that it's not possible to make money, it's not possible to run it like a normal business. What's your, your standpoint in this? Uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm motivated by making an impact and making money because I think when I was the CEO of a zoological garden, I was very motivated in taking money from people um, and taking more money, but also seeing that they became more uh, satisfied with the zoological garden that we were providing. So the, the earnings that we had, they grew, but also the satisfaction grew. So I think that you know you can balance these two things. It's not about you know being Mr. Scrooge and just trying to rip people off. It's not about that. It's about balancing it. Uh, I'm not very motivated in in if if Life Shelter was a, a purely social enterprise and we would do this for the greater good. Of course, we're doing it for the greater good, but we're also doing it because we can see that there is a market for people's lives the people they're willing to pay a rent for a, a house or whatever so there, there is an inherent need for decent living and if we can provide that and we can also provide enough funds so i can pay back my investors then you know everybody's happy then everybody's better off and everybody's happy it's very easy to fall into kind of like the situation that if you want to work with the NGOs, you need to be like the NGOs. And then you transfer yourself into, into a social enterprise. And for me, that's not very attractive. Uh, it might be a, a survival tactic for the company, but it's not, it's not, for me, it's not sustainable. Yeah, I think this is a great example of how you can provide impact at a larger scale and at the same time be profitable and be sustainable because if you're not sustainable enough, then you cannot guarantee that you will provide your solution that you want so much to actually be implemented for the social cause. So I think it's it's very important to, to keep this in mind and it's kind of breaking a little bit the stereotype of the old fashioned social businesses, which were very dependent on grants or kind of the NGOs that you, that you mentioned. So I hope this motivates our audience to come up with social businesses and at the same time, understand that you can make money out of it so that you can grow your business and provide a, a better solution to, to the social impact. Mm. Um, so Jens, you are one of our heroes at, at Seed Stars with, um, with Life Shelters. Can you tell us who is your hero? Uh, depending on the situation, I think I have many, many different heroes. Um, <laughs> I like to, I, you know, I've been asked that question before and, you know, I, I've, I've never had someone I wanted to be like. I don't, I don't want to be stereotyped and, uh, you know, say, oh, I want to be Bill Gates or Gandhi or whatever. So I, I, I have really, really difficulties in, in, in saying that. But there's some people, of course, that are inspiring me a lot. And one of them, and I would recommend that book, uh, the book is called Let My People Go Surfing. It's written by the founder of Patagonia uh, Outdoor Clothing, Yvonne Chonard, who was a climber, climber of a mountaineer. 
And okay. his motivation was when he was climbing in the parks back in the 70s, he saw that everybody was starting to climb and everybody was punching in nails in the, in the rocks for securing their ropes. And it, then he thought, this is not very sustainable. We need to find a new way of making these nails go into the rocks so it can become uh, a more sustainable sport so my children, they can enjoy climbing in the rocks. And that was, you know, that was his inspiration to create Patagonia. And uh, I think they have been in the forefront. They were the first of making uh coke bottles into fleece jackets uh i think they are uh, as a company uh, i'm very they are very admirable if i should pinpoint one but i don't know if i want to be like yvonne i don't know him <laughs> <laughs> do you climb yourself and <laughs> uh, no, i do a lot. i've done a, quite a lot of uh, adventurous um, activities whitewater kayaking I was a dog sled guide for 10 years in Alaska and Canada. So okay. I know I know the that kind of the world, but I never fell in love with climbing, no. Okay, okay. But it's, it's, it's true that many, um, like, let's say, CEOs, managing directors and seasoned entrepreneurs, they have as reference sports people, um, which I think plays a huge role in terms of the values of resilience, discipline, um, short-term versus long-term mindset. So... Um, I've, I've never heard about, about this particular case, but I'm not surprised that you find reference in somebody that actually did climbing, so, so yeah. <laughs> so I know, Jens, that um, you're not the founder of Life Shelter, but you're now the managing director, and the founder is part of your team. Um, how was this relationship handled, and was it challenging in the beginning, and how are you, how are you still finding inspiration in managing, managing the team now that he's part of, of it? Yes, yeah, so the, the, the founder, Jacob Christensen, uh, is a really cool guy. Uh, he's also in the, in the board of directors. So he's in my board and I'm his boss. So, so, so we are each other's uh, wingmen. Uh, and coming into Life Shelter, you know, this was one of the big things that we needed to address he and I, and of course also the board, uh, that he was okay with leaving the CEO position to someone else because he was the CEO until a year and a half ago, uh, and then have me on board. And as persons, we are extremely different. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, just this partnership of being in tune all the time and also uh, agreeing on the paths to follow and being able to work together, eat together, sleep together, and just work tirelessly is extremely important. And um, so it has been, I think it's not a challenge, but it's something that we are constantly aware of, both our differences, but also that we completely agree on the vision of Life Shelter. So, and, and when we have, of course, we have disagreements. Every, I mean, we are, you know, a, a dynamic team, but we always have, you know, the, the bigger uh, objectives inside of uh, Life Shield, and we are completely in tune with that. Mm -hmm. We usually say that we both know that we're going to the North Pole, uh, but, you know, you can go this way or that way around the hill. Yeah. <laughs> what is the North Pole? 
for well, the North Pole for us is um, ten thousand ten uh, shelters in Somalia, for instance. That's the North Pole. Okay, I think it's a very strong message to be able to, as a founder and as the kind of the visionary, to step to a side and recognize that maybe now your venture needs another type of profile. And I think it's a very strong message to put out there that it's important to, if you have to take this decision, to actually take it for the best of the venture, because I guess he did it for the best of the project and he's, he's glad to have you, Jens, as now the managing director. So yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I think it's, 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 quite, it's quite interesting that <laughs> it motivates me that I don't need to necessarily found a project, but actually be part of the managing team. Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. So Jens, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and learning to, more about Life Shelter. And thanks for joining the Sisters podcast. Yes, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our hero's journey and subscribe now for more stories on Seed Stars podcast.